Hey, folks, Tom Block. Thanks for tuning into Front Row Knowles, and thanks to the Champions Club and Seminole Boosters for their longtime support of this podcast. By now, you've seen or heard about the Boosters One Tribe campaign, which is annual membership to Seminole Boosters that helps fund the most vital needs of the FSU athletics program, including scholarships, academic support, and athletic training. I'll put this as simply as I can. If you're listening to this podcast, you care about FSU athletics and should be a booster. Many of you already are. Thank you. And I encourage you, if you're able, to increase your support. If you're not a member, you can join for as little as 70 bucks a year. Just go to boosters.fsu.edu to learn more. And now sit back, keep your seat, keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle. Well, you know the drill. Enjoy the show. Here's Front Row Knowles. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener, online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Good day, everybody. Tom and KJ back with you on Front Row Knowles. Keith, how are you, sir? I am doing well. How about this weather, Tommy? How about it? I just know what's... Oh, never mind. I'm not going there. It's good. Yes. <laughs> you, you're getting wiser in your old age. Yeah. You know, I, I don't even know why I add the but anymore. Maybe that's because I'm getting older. But anyway. But uh, anyway. Everything good? Everything's real good. Everything's real good. The youngest Except- grandbaby, my youngest grandson turned one on Sunday. So now I got them from 12 years of age to one year of age. I got, I got 10 of them so I can uh, have a full baseball team and a starting right-hander and a starting left-hander on the mound. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'd like to see you coach that team from age one to 12. You let me know how that goes. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll video that. That might be something I uh, end up uh, – that may be my entrance into social media. We got a lot to to dive into. Busy spring season continues. A lot of success going on. Men's golf, the latest. Bob Ferranti, our Osceola insider, will join us in a little bit. But I I guess we have to talk about soccer, Keith, because that ripped my heart out the other night. And I know people have already maybe turned the page since it's been forty eight hours, but that's that one still sits in the in my belly. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Now you know the two games prior to the national ship, uh, championship game, they went penalty kicks. And, uh, you know, when they were up by one uh, with just a few minutes left, you know, you, you were just holding your breath and hoping they could hold off uh, and, and win that one in regulation. Uh, but uh, when Santa Clara made that goal and, and then they went to overtime and then they went to the penalty kicks, you know, I guess the good luck, because I think I read somewhere, you correct me, but I think Florida State soccer had won nine consecutive penalty kick matches. This was number 10. Uh, yeah, I think I read that somewhere. So, but at any rate, the prior two had gone to that. So you knew, unfortunately, you feared that at some point that, that magic would run out. I don't know if it was as high as nine, but it was several in a row. The reality is, and I'm a former mediocre goalkeeper in City League. So put that in context, which is to say, nowhere near the caliber of what's playing at the collegiate level, whether it's men's or women's. Correct. And I am not a soccer aficionado, though I've called plenty of soccer matches, played it. My son's actually a, a goalkeeper now, and so he liked, he loved watching the, the shootouts, except for the one the other night. It's a crapshoot when you get in there. Like, you don't yeah. want to go to penalty kicks. It's a flip no. of a coin, and if you're the keeper, you have to guess. And if you guess right, you can maybe maybe make a save. And if you guess wrong, there's no chance. I mean, that's just the reality of it. To me. 
and again, we're not the soccer guys, but there was some, somebody tweeted at me that the strategy was the reason they lost because they play a conservative, very patient style. They're going to work the ball backwards and, and until there's actually a great lane or avenue to press it forward. That's just their style. But my counter would be that it was not a strategy issue that was the reason for the failure. It was an execution issue. The strategy worked. They were leading with six minutes to go. They made one bad pass, and that's what cost them. Mm-hmm. And in overtime, they had a point-blank shot that hit off the crossbar. They had another opportunity where somebody made one extra pass, which generally you're in favor of, but you were 12 feet from the goal. You didn't need the extra pass. And and I hate to go to the ref card, but there was a PK that could have been called in the first half for a foul in the box that they didn't call. So that to me, much more why they lost than the kids who missed the the penalty kick efforts in the shootout. Bottom line is we know very well that they'll be back there next year. They go every year and you keep getting at bats. You're going to get some Mark Krikorian's two and three in the championships or FSU soccer is, you know, five years from now, we'll be talking about how he's four and three or whatever it is. That's just the reality of how this is going to go. And, and it's a testament to what Mark and his staff and then the players that they bring in, uh, what they buy into. The other part, Tommy, that we, we just fail to recognize, we fail to give uh, proper um, uh, credence to, is every one of these ladies are excellent students. They graduate with their degrees. Many of them will have an opportunity at some level of professional ball, but when everything's said and done, these ladies are, are going to be uh, extremely successful off of the, off of the field. Uh, and we just don't talk about that enough, along with the fact that this is just a phenomenal program. Phenomenal program. They did lose their best player after the fall season, too, oh, by the way, who's playing professionally and was an All-American. And Mark Krikorian had told me, he had told us that this, he thought this was his best team, but the best team doesn't always win. Right. Unfortunately, that's what happened. Soccer's a very cruel, unforgiving. I mean, you can dominate 89 out of 90 minutes and have one breakdown and you get the results you got the other night. And that's, unfortunately, that's, some might say it's the beauty of the sport. Uh, in this case, it's clearly the agony. So I, I hated it for him, but they, they'll be back again. They will be back again, but it was a, it was Agreed. a tough, tough finish. Now that said, great. We're going to talk with uh, Amy Bond, the Florida State women's golf coach, in a little bit. Her team is headed to nationals after winning the regionals for the first time ever. And if you just look at the last two weeks, Keith, beach volleyball finished fifth nationally. Soccer finished second nationally. Women's tennis uh, is playing in the Elite Eight today. Women's golf is into the NCAA championships. Women's and men's track just won ACC championships. Men's golf is tearing up its own regional uh, women's softball let us down. They didn't win a conference crown for the first time in a half plus decade. So I guess we'll let Lonnie slide, but bottom line, there's a lot good going on and uh, we'll dive into it with Bob Ferranti next segment. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, you know, one of the things that we pride ourselves here on front row Knowles, uh, we, we know football plays the bills. We know baseball and uh, basketball is right behind it, but uh, we enjoy talking about the overall excellence of this program. And uh, I hope our listeners appreciate that. That's, that's what we intend to do. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Amen. And so Amy Bond, the golf coach joins us later. I I do want to dive to football now because the ACC meetings that are always in Amelia Island were held last week, Keith, but they were held virtually. So you didn't have media camped out. You didn't have as much buzz about them, but the ACC's commissioner came out. I think it was Thursday. It was after we taped our show last week. 
and he didn't say that he was fanning the flames to hurry up and rip up the current playoff of four teams and get it to eight, but he did say he was open to expansion, which at least is a little bit more. And there's been a lot, there's been more of a groundswell nationally that, that they're having a lot of significant conversations, even to the point where they're suggesting maybe we don't need to let this current TV contract go the full 12 years. Maybe we can do it after the nine year mark when everybody's had an equal amount of bowl games. So I guess, Personally, I'm happy to hear that we're at least closer to this. We know that money's the reason why, because more revenue will be involved for everybody. But your thoughts? Well, I think it, it was uh, talked about, particularly when COVID hit, and we thought that there would be, and there was, a reduction in revenue in the short term. But then all of a sudden, the NFL renews their contracts, and, and the money goes up. And now we haven't had any conferences with the exception of uh, the SEC and the way they did their CBS deal, um, but it went up. And, you know, the, the talk was we needed to go the full cycle, the full 12 years, because that would coincide with some of the uh, conference TV deals coming up, you know, in the mid to late 20s. But evidently what we've uncovered in COVID is that the fact of real-time programming, i.e. sports, we can watch everything else when we want to. But you can only watch sports live when it's live. It loses its appeal after that. There evidently, I don't know where the threshold is, I don't know where the graph crosses, I'm stunned, but there evidently is still more money out there for live events. And I think it's probably prudent to look at it and maybe take advantage of it and not wait the full 12 years. I do think that where COVID has helped Keith, is it just because they were forced to do so many things out of the norm this last year, like schedule non-conference on two weeks notice and adjust schedules, cancel games the day before, you know, move bowl dates around all that stuff. They figured out that the world, you know, the sun still rises when you do some of that stuff. So why not talk about it and, and see if there's a, a more permanent way to, to carve it into the future? Here's here's my question. And, you know, nobody really knows details because college football is, is like the opposite of the NFL. They don't put all this detail out there. Instead of getting people excited about it, they keep it hush hush. Whereas the NFL, you know, they just tease stories out every 10 seconds to let people react to it, you know. Um but there's, you know, apparently they're looking at everything from six teams to 16 teams, right? But, but then you hear talk that they want to keep the bowl structure. And the one thing I feel like I never hear is if you look at an eight-team or a 16-team model where the, the round of 16 and the round of eight are played in early December, basically, why could the loser of those games not still go to a bowl game? Why does their season have to end on December 10th because you lost in the quarterfinals if you wanted to go to a bowl game? Uh, the, the, the natural uh, answer to that is you don't want kids playing 14 and 15 and 16 games a season. And if you allow the losers to then play in another game, instead of restricting that to four or eight teams going that long, now you've got 20 or 24 or whatever the number is. But I think, too, that that ship has sailed. I think we're over that. Uh, And I think you could structure as they do now with select bowls and have them on a rotational basis. 
whether it be the quarterfinal or, or the round of eight or the round of 16. And then keep some of your premier bowls. And when I say premier, I mean the ones that are so well supported at the local level. We may not consider them at the national level, but allow, you know, a quarterfinal, uh, you know, round of eight uh, losing team that's still ranked number 11 in the country to play in Shreveport or play in St. Petersburg or play wherever. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable compromise. I really do. Hold on, except you, you had me until Shreveport, Keith. If you're number 11 in the country, you should be I'm making. I'm just illustrating a minor bowl would still have an opportunity to have a very named program. And I'm suggesting it might be more of a major bowl. I mean, you just plug them into, you know, whatever we call the Gator Bowl or the Hall of Fame Bowl. The sponsors change so much, I can't even keep up with them. Well, yeah. the problem with that is that most of the major bowls would be involved in the playoff. So it would actually be a second game. But then you can also go back, and I'll credit you for this, you could have the first or second round, the round of 16, the round of eight, at the home stadium of and the highest-ranked team. That, that seems to be what they're talking about with this. So here's a possible solution, Keith, to the too-many-games issue. FCS school play, schools played a spring football season this year. Hear me out now. If you kept them in the spring permanently, maybe it would – uh, you know, do better TV numbers because I don't know about you, but I'm not watching Sam Houston State on October 12th if I can be watching Ohio State, Michigan. Or that's a bad example. That's not the date of the game, but you get my point. Sure. But on on February 12th, I might be. But so you take the FCS guarantee games out of the fall. Now everybody says, well, FCS schools need the money. You pay them to come be your spring opponent at your spring game. They're already playing a spring football season. They get their guarantee money then. Then you don't have 14 games in the fall. You actually get an opponent in the spring, so there's some upside or excitement about the game, and you've, you've solved all these problems all at once. I'd have to ferret through that, hadn't consider it, but uh, I've, learned, I've learned that with that master's degree in sports management, one uh, William Thomas Block doesn't always have bad ideas. I'll put it that way. Just to correct, by the way, you're William Keith Jones. I'm Thomas William Block. So let's get the, the name. My bad. No, the, the downside would be two potential downsides. One, does it feel like you're, you've now, even if, if the perception is already that you're not the FBS because you're not, did you just widen that gap by saying we're not even going to compete and play our season at the same time? We're going to move it to the spring. But the bigger one is the NFL draft, which is not going to change its date. And so now you got kids. Do they want to be playing football in March and April when they could be doing their workout? And, and I know it's not as many kids at that level, but there's still plenty that excel at the NFL. Um, I'm just throwing it out there. I feel like opponents are coming to spring football at some point, even if it's just as a jamboree and not a true scrimmage. You're just running drills. It's coming. And I agree. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, anytime you can turn it into a revenue generator, you know, I know our listeners will say, you know, where's that Jones guy from five or 10 years ago that, you know, didn't buy into all this. Well, uh, you know, he's seen what's happened and the inevitable is the inevitable. Now let's do it in a proper way. Let's just don't do it haphazardly. Our Osceola insider, Bob Ferrante, will join us momentarily. I'll remind you that uh, pay attention to these digits, 894-4653. That's the golf club at uh, Summerbrook. You can uh, give that number a call, inquire about uh, membership. 
Uh, I've told you that they've got a lighted driving range, including uh, Friday night lights festivities, generally happy hour live music out there uh, around their resort style pool, which is all pool membership also included in the golf membership uh, if you choose that level. So give them a call, 894-4653. We will move Bob Ferrante from the on-deck circle into the batter's box and talk FSU baseball right after this on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back. Tom and KJ back with you on Front Row Knowles. And our Front Row Knowles uh, Osceola insider Bob Ferrante has joined the party. Hey, Bob, how are you? Doing well, guys. Enjoying uh, some golf here at the Seminole Legacy Course with Jerry and, and watching, you know, some of the best golfers out there collegiately uh, do their thing. It, it's fun to watch. Really fun. Two quick takeaways. And as we're recording, the men have been lapping the field all week. They still have to finish up the back nine. But barring a total collapse, they're going to advance and finish in the top five. And they're going to win the regional, it, it would presume. So, Number one, I guess the two takeaways are they're pretty doggone good. And then number two, I'm curious what the feedback has been just from people playing the course and getting the exposure of this legacy uh, golf course, because that's a big deal that we talked about with Trey Jones last week. Yeah, watching these guys, the precision which with which they play, it, it's almost like you couldn't have thrown the golf ball onto the green any better. These guys really, you can tell, they work at it six, seven days a week, and it, it's exceptional to watch. Um, you know, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. I think it, I would have to argue this is a, among the most challenging courses that college golfers are, are going to face, you know, outside of, say, uh, an Augusta, Beth Page, you know, one of those uh, major type of courses. It'll be interesting as we talk, you know, later this afternoon with some of the coaches like at Georgia Tech, Georgia, you know, give us some feedback as far as you've played some of the great courses around the southeast, even around the nation. How does this kind of course stack up? Um, it's a beautiful course. And if you have the chance to play it, you enjoy it. Uh, definitely you should take the opportunity to, to enjoy it before the heat and humidity kicks in. But it, it's, a, it's a course that's definitely challenging. You watch these greens and if you hit it to the wrong spot, you're, you're, in, you're in bad shape. There's, there's a lot of waves and, and challenges within, um, within the greens. And it's, it's certainly a course that's, that's going to challenge you. Bob, one of the things I've heard over the years, because I played Seminole probably the first time back in 1980 or 81, that's 40 years ago. Everybody always talked about that it would never be a great course because there's not enough water. You know, everybody's enamored with water. But uh, the way this one's set up and designed, um, if they added more water, half of us wouldn't be able to play it at all, I don't think. Yeah, I... I can understand. I think everybody's going to criticize and say, well, I like this course or I'm used to this type of golf course from South Florida or various parts of the country. You have to work with the landscape, right? And I think that's what Jack Nicholas and Jackie Nicholas did. They, they really wanted to lean on the landscape. There's some beautiful trees everywhere. And there's, there's times where you say, why does there have to be a tree there? You know, that tree shouldn't be right there because if you're just off the fairway, it makes for a really tough shot trying to get on the green. But I, 
look, as somebody who doesn't play golf, but maybe can appreciate athleticism of these guys and what they're doing, this is a really beautiful course and, and they're playing it at an extremely high level. And hopefully that continues right on into uh, Arizona and the Nationals. Speaking of which, we will uh, talk with women's golf coach Amy Bond in our next segment. Uh, the Women and Men's National Championships are on the same course out in Scottsdale. Uh, she's up for National Coach of the Year. That conversation is coming up. Bob, let's talk baseball. We promised at the top we'd talk about this. And I think we'd all agree that the RPI is never the best measurement or measuring stick of, for any sport. Uh, but it's a measuring tool. But this year in particular, I mean, when you look at the rankings, Florida State's ranked as high as number 12 by Baseball America and as low as number 48 in the RPI. That's that's a pretty big disparity. And it feels like the NCAA, maybe it doesn't feel like, I think the NCAA has just solely used the RPI, uh, which is as wacky as ever this year because it's a COVID year. And so you have less interconference games or non-conference games. And uh, unfortunately, Florida State's on the wrong end of it, candidly. It is unfortunate. And I, I don't know, how do you, you know, take a series against Clemson and you fall from 32 to 48? I think it just shows you the RPI is, is really skewed and, and flawed this year. You know, Kendall Rogers with D1Baseball.com, he's, he's done your show in the past. And, you know, I thought he had an interesting story kind of as he, as he was analyzing things. He said, you know, with RPI, you have to have a good cross-pollination of conference play. And it's a really great way to say it because, in 2021, you have very little cross-conference play. You know, Florida State only played Florida twice. That Jacksonville game was canceled. Um, you know, Florida State's scheduled based on geography, like a lot of schools. You're, you're playing a lot of Florida schools, a Troy, a Mercer. Um, look, Notre Dame only played a handful of out-of-conference games before it played Florida State. Um, all the ACC coaches were in agreement they were going to play more conference games this year. So they're playing six more than in 2019. But the problem is when the committee, presumably, because they haven't explained their, their reasoning, their true, what they're evaluating, and maybe they will down the road when they select the true field of 64. But since they haven't kind of peeled back the curtain to say, here's what we were looking at as far as seeds, as far as regional hosts, until we know that, we have to presume that what they thought or what they're thinking is counter- to how coaches scheduled and coaches scheduled in this manner because of player safety in a pandemic, because of financial reasons of how you can't travel as easily or as far, you know, sure, sure. Some Northern schools did come down for obvious reasons because you can start the baseball season on time, but in four state sense, it, it just didn't help out in the ACC sense too. Um, you know, Louisville didn't get a, a regional, one of the 20 regional um, potential sites. So there's a lot of question marks, I think, for how this played out and really moving forward, how do you adjust scheduling to strengthen yourself down the road? Do you reduce some of those ACC games in the 2022 season? Do you play more SEC? Do you play, how do you do it? I think that that's a really interesting question for Mike Martin Jr. and the league coaches moving forward. I you think know, another complicating factor too, Tommy, was the, I believe the SEC is playing six more games than ACC schools, just in terms of total body of work, uh, you know, and I'm I'm concerned about whether we need jerk. I mean, is this just a one-off? The RPI worked well in 19. It worked well in 18. Will it work well in 21? Are we going to need jerk and do something too far, or does it really need to be looked at? I don't I don't have that answer. I'm just raising that question. 
Yeah, I don't either. I, I think I think you're, you're raising a lot of good points. And again, the coach are going to have to figure out how do you present your team and your conference in the best position moving forward. And I think, you know, if you're an ACC school like like Florida State, you're close enough to Auburn, LSU, Georgia, a lot of schools around the southeast. Maybe you should get out there and play some of those games and, yes, take some losses, but also it just strengthens your your out of conference schedule your viewpoint of how you appear because candidly i mean is florida state getting dinged because of one really really bad loss and that was to jacksonville that was a midweek game where you know a kid from the dolphins had three home runs and beat florida state do you get dinged because of a a 200 team knocks down your rpi because that's a home loss against a really bad team does that kind of um negative on your resume overwhelm in the eyes of a committee that's trying to evaluate all these schools and then say well are they deserving are they deserving it it, it's really complex i I really i guess i'm more curious i have more questions than than what the committee's willing to share at this point but i think we will get some clarity as far as their decision making i got several thoughts to drop in here one related to being an rpi expert You'll recall this, Bob, when Chris Poole came in to coach volleyball, the ACC was a one or two bid league and they played an ACC tournament every year, which is just more games against one another. So he really lobbied hard to do away with the tournament and use that weekend to play non-conference opponents. And he had a whole grid. And as a result, the ACC has become a three or four bid league for volleyball. And I'm approximating the numbers because I'm not that close to it, but he understood the science of it. Um, Point two related to the midweek games, because I've seen some frustration related to meat. This is one of the differences between 11 and meat, in my opinion. 11 would use the same combination of pitchers generally, fewer pitchers, not more. And the result was you would win more of those midweek games because you weren't tinkering or experimenting, which got you to 40 wins, didn't have what you call the bad loss. But then maybe in the postseason, you had some guys in the pen that you hadn't really tested as much. And Meat does it the way, I mean, I, I know candidly, this is the way Florida does it. They will pitch eight or nine guys on a Tuesday, and they might lose to Stetson, but they know what they've got from this guy that they pitched in the seventh and eighth inning. So on the, you're, you maybe you're shorting yourself overall wins, and maybe it dinged your RPI a little, but maybe you're in better shape when you get to the postseason with some of those arms. Here's, here's my other thought in terms of advancing baseball, though, Bob. I mean, it's all over the SEC network. If you get the ACC network, it's there. SEC schools are spending a ton because they have the money to spend. It's, it's a big damn deal. We're still only seeding the field one to 16 and we're hiding behind. Now, COVID, let's wipe out COVID. Let's talk about next year. At some point, you got to advance this to you're just seeding it, even if it means that FSU is matched up with a school in Texas and Florida is matched up with, you know, somebody in North Carolina. Because I think part of the problem with FSU, aside from when Stanford has come in or when they went to Stanford in the mid-90s, it's the same eight teams that have come to the regionals every year. Bethune-Cookman, Alabama, Auburn, South Alabama. I mean, it's the same schools every year. Don't you agree on that point? Yeah, I think at the lower seeds, especially geography is a factor. You know, an Alabama state, a Bethune-Cookman type tends to often be here. Um, I, I don't know what the great solutions are. I think I have more questions, honestly, than answers. I, I do think, you know, how, how does this play out for Florida State? There's potential that they will go to a weaker regional host. That's one potential edge. You can be a strong number two. 
say at a Louisiana Tech. You might rather be there this year than say go to another SEC school. I don't think anybody wants to see Florida State go to, to Florida. Nobody wants Vanderbilt and part of those two co-aces up there. There are a lot of less desirable you know, regional hosts in, within the SEC that you, you don't want a part of right now. So if you're, if you're kind of trying to find some silver lining, you know, Florida State to Louisiana Tech is maybe not the most desirable travel destination, but it's a good shot to get you to a super and then, you know, kind of fight from there. Hey, here's good oh. news. Then we'll change the subject. Sorry, Keith. NC State is 31 in the RPI, Bob. You know what that means? Florida State has a chance to drop some more if they take another series. <laughs> no, I was going to say they can lose the series but move up. I mean, we're in good shape. You can lose two out of three and move up. I'm at a loss with the RPI this year, guys. I I just I don't know. Up is down, down is up. What am I supposed to What am I supposed to do here, Bob? What do you think uh, if if Florida State were to win the series against uh, the Wolfpack? What What do you think will happen at the ACC tournament? I mean, um, they're not on a bubble, I wouldn't presume, but yet if they wanted to position themselves better, I mean, can they can they afford to go in there and, 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 and not play well and still be okay? Or is it, is the ACC tournament important other than building them going forward? If if I'm asking that question correctly. Yeah, I'm torn on this one because historically we always think, well, the conference tournaments are important to the selection committee, but a lot of times you look back on it and it's almost like they ignored what you did in the conference tournament. I, I just think right now Florida State's a, a solid number two and presuming they're going to be one of the best number two seeds out there. They should play at one of the lesser number one seeds. Um, now at the same time, you're going to pool play. You want to have momentum and confidence. You want to stack right, a couple right. wins. It, it's an unusual format because it, it doesn't mirror anything that you do in the regular season. That's a little bit of a different challenge. Um, but I, I do think there's a lot of bragging rights. There's a lot of, you know, players love it. They want to do well. You want to build some momentum going into the postseason. I, I don't think it has a whole lot of bearing, though, as far as where the committee will slot, you know, Florida State. Bob, we already relived the heartbreak that was FSU soccer, but have you talked to Krikorian or any of the uh, players since then? Have they have they been able to utter a word? Yeah, they did a post-game Zoom, but beyond that, um, you know, nothing else beyond that. I, I think I think what Coach Krikorian and a lot of the players have felt pretty consistently is this was a, a rough rough year, you know, for them to have a split season, to, to go through COVID and travel and kind of gear back up after being done mid-November and, and play pro teams and get into some semblance of, um, of championship caliber soccer. Um I think they just lived and, and, and died within the penalty kick framework of things a little too much. Um, didn't take, take advantage of those opportunities in regulation. They, they had their chances on Monday and, you know, we saw it, you know, hitting the post, hitting the crossbar, I think, um, you know, and then the, the two penalty kicks that hit the, the post too. It, it's frustrating. It's, I think it's a horrible way to lose a game, let alone to have it happen in soccer like that. But I think on the flip side, you've got a lot of players who are going to be coming back you know, in fall, this is going to be a loaded roster coming back for them to perhaps take another shot at it. Keith, anything else from you? Nope. I'm just reeling in the disappointment. 
I just, I just knew those ladies were going to take that national championship. It felt so close. It was, it was what six, seven minutes away before that bad pass. It felt like you were trying to control possession and run out the clock. And, and then maybe once that goal happened, it, it I wonder how much it really deflated them. You know, as a team, you're, you feel like you're, you, you got a good hold on it and then it, it just slipped away. Once again, Tommy, you used the football analogy, that daggum prevent defense failed again. <laughs> oh, it was, it was gut-wrenching for sure. Bob, thank you as always. Take care, guys. All right, more after this. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by the Osceola, dedicated to FSU sports and fan experiences. Sign up for a free trial at theosceola.com or call 833-FSU-NEWS. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom and KJ with you, and we are uh, pleased to be joined by the Florida State women's golf coach Amy Bond, who is uh, beaming from ear to ear because her team has really played well last week, won the regional championship for the first time in school history. So let's start there. I know there's a bigger goal, but it's not it's a nice feather in your cap to have that one and check that box and and, and play as well as your team has played this year. Most definitely. I mean, the big thing, our goal, our goal was to win an ACC championship this year and then make the eight in match play at the national championship. Never in my wildest dreams did I think we'd, we'd win a regional, but um, we got a little disappointed at ACC's and losing to Duke in the finals, and they came out hot at regional. So it was, uh, I wouldn't say it was an easy week, but we in the lead all three days, which is always nice. Tell us about the makeup of your team a little bit here as, as a starting point. I mean, you guys have uh, you've you've played terrific, maybe even better than you could have expected, given that, uh, you know, you've got a couple of veterans and then three youngsters that are in the mix. Yeah, we have um, three freshmen that joined our team in the fall, uh, so they're not even redshirt freshmen, and they've come in ready to play. We've got Charlotte Heath, who's from England, uh, Taylor Roberts, who's from Parkland, Florida, and then Alice Hodge who, depending on where you ask, she's from Westchester County, New York, um, but they're currently living in Charlotte. So they've come in and really been kind of little spark plugs for us uh, to go with our two juniors who have been staples in our lineup since they first got on campus. So with the two juniors and the three freshmen, they've really gelled extremely well together, and they've fed off of each other, and they continue to just push each other to play some really good golf. Coach, I know you were high on the freshmen. You wouldn't have recruited them if you weren't, but did they even surprise you about how mature and how quickly their game advanced once they got to Tallahassee? No doubt there. I mean, I didn't anticipate all three of them being in the lineup for every single match of the year, and they have just come in and, and played well. I mean, Charlotte, Charlotte Heath has great pedigree, having played on the England national team. Uh, she won the Australian Open, uh, or excuse me, the Australian Amateur. Uh, last or I guess it was two years ago now um, and then Taylor Roberts made the quarters of the U.S. junior but that was three years ago and then Alice Hodge has really just impressed me I mean she's somebody who she's a freshman that's not bothered by anything she just goes out there and does her job she will par you to death 
but that's exactly what we need out of our five player. So I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at how they're playing. Um, but at the same time, I expected them to do it, but maybe as sophomores and juniors. Hey, Tommy, I got a new phrase now. I'm going to double bogey people to death when I play. <laughs> Coach, we thought we'd cross things up here, switch it up for you by asking about the freshman first instead of asking about your ACC Player of the Year. So now that we got that out of the way, uh, Beatrice Vollen, ACC Player of the Year, top 10 finalist for the Annika Sorenstam Award uh, from Sweden, by the way, as well. Tell us about uh, Beatrice on the course and, and off the course for that matter. I mean, Bia's done a really good job. Bia's quiet. She's always uh, just kind of gone about her business and and worked on her golf game and things like that. But she's really uh, matured as a junior and become a team leader. She, I think one of the great things, and we've tried to turn COVID into something positive, you know, not playing in the fall was actually a good thing for us because it allowed us as coaches to spend a lot more one-on-one time with our players. But for Bia, she went home in March um, a year ago and really worked on her golf game, fine-tuned it, um, worked with her instructor, played a lot of golf. And really when COVID stopped everything, she was at the top of her game. She'd had three straight top 10 finishes and she just continued that for the whole year of COVID and then came back and has played some really good golf. I mean, she, we call her smiley because she smiles all the time. And it's so nice as a coach to come up to a player and they're smiling. Now, don't get me wrong. If she were to make a double bogey, she would not smile. But at the same time, you could get her to smile within about three or four minutes. Um, so that to me is, is the great thing about being, and she's highly competitive. You know, the, the Swedes have done a great job in developing talent and be as one of those talented Swedes but she's really branched out on her own and played some really good golf over the last year and a half. Coach, you mentioned this a little bit, but you know, you've got upperclassmen <clears throat> that have been there a while. You've got the freshmen coming in. Golf is a very individual game, but yet at the collegiate level, you've got to play it as a team. How do you manage that? How do you balance that? <laughs> you know, sometimes it's a little bit interesting because we're unique. We're the one sport that's very unique in that, and that our kids each week are – competing for an individual championship and a team championship. So the way in which we kind of do it, we do a lot of team bonding activities. Um, That's one of the reasons I bring in international players because they have the international team experience and they can bring that to the American players. Um, At the same time, we look at the kids' personalities and I don't ever say yes to a recruit until they come on campus and meet the team and the team gives the final approval. So to me, in that respect, everybody buys in. You know, everybody's got to buy into being a part of the, our program. And they're proud to be Seminoles. And they're proud to compete at the highest level. And they like each other on and off the golf course. I mean, every time I call one of them, they're with a different one. You know, so to me as a coach, and coaching female, sometimes drama plays a role. We've been very, very lucky in that our kids get along and in there's no drama. So they enjoy that. And it's fun because for our American kids, it's the one time they get to compete as a team because they've grown up playing individually. Well, and you got three team victories this year. So obviously that camaraderie and, and, and bond uh, shows up on the field, you know, when you are on the course, I should say, when you can, you can have that kind of success. 
Most definitely. I mean, the cool thing about golf is, <clears throat> you know, the cool thing and the bad thing is there's no timeouts and no substitutions. So the five you start with are the five you finish with. So in golf courses, they tend to crisscross. So the players can see each other. So we have a tradition of when they make a birdie, they have to turn around to the player that's behind them and shoot an arrow. Make believe arrow, of course, but they turn around and that kind of gives their teammate um, kind of a little boost of energy saying, hey, I just made birdie, now follow me up. So that those little pieces of the puzzle, um, along with a smile or a wave, help to really make them a team. All right, so coach, for folks that aren't following, where, where will you go next? You're traveling and what's the format? Um, we are traveling to the national championship, which is in Scottsdale, Arizona at Greyhawk Golf Club. So there are 24 teams left playing in women's division one college golf. So <clears throat> we um, are actually leaving today, Tuesday, and we go out there, we do a walk around tomorrow. A practice round on Thursday. Play starts on Friday. So it's 54 holes. All 24 teams play 54 holes of golf. Um, so at the end of that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. At the end of Sunday, they'll cut to 15 teams. And those 15 teams will keep their scores uh, through the first three days and play a fourth round of stroke play to what they call race to the eight. And eight teams will make match play, which will be determined at the end of Monday, along with they will crown an individual champion as well on that Monday. And then those eight teams that make match play, the quarters and the semis are on Tuesday and the finals are on Wednesday. So it's eight rounds of golf in seven days, but uh, I'd love to be standing on that first tee next Wednesday uh, with a chance to win a national championship. And we'd, we'd all love to see it, too. So I know you haven't done your walk around or played your practice round yet, but you've done your homework. How does this course uh, stack up compared to the strengths and weaknesses of your team, do you think? Well, it's desert golf. Um, desert golf is very unique. Uh, we, we don't have that around here. It's a dry, you know, dry environment. Um, the good thing is it's a golf course and every golf course is different. So every week our kids play a different kind of grass. Um, a different looking golf course and things like that. So they have to adjust. I think some of our advantages are the fact that we hit it straight. Um, so if we pick good target lines, we should be able to uh, keep it in the fairway, which is important. I don't want to be, I don't want to be messing around in any cactuses and, you know, it's baby rattlesnake season. So I don't, I just soon keep it in the fairway. Um, same time, we're really starting. We've really put a focus on our short game. And my understanding is, in looking at the golf course, it's going to create a lot of opportunities for mid to low irons, even wedges in our hand. So if we can take advantage of those opportunities of having what we call scoring clubs in our hand, I think we've got a, a good chance. Amy, it's been a long time since I played around a desert golf, but I lost a lot of balls that day because I didn't spend any time trying to chase them or hunt them down. Just, just, just let them be. <laughs> I can't play unless I have a four caddy. In other words, a guy looking for my ball. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thankful in women's golf, they tend to hit it straight. So you don't hear a lot of knocking on trees and you don't spend a lot of time playing hide and seek. So um, I'm good with that. Coach, I want to uh, bring it kind of bigger picture from your team, although this is directly related, but you're somebody who played for Florida State. And so you've seen the evolution of the Don Veller Seminole Golf Course into the Seminole Legacy 
uh, course now. Um, can, can you kind of put that in context just from a pride standpoint and how far it's come from where it was to where, where it is right now and how that's helped your program? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely proud and blessed um, and thankful to the university and President Thrasher and the athletic department for allowing us to build, change Seminole legacy. Uh, because, you know, when I was in school, we called it the divot in the ranch. And now it is spectacular. I mean, it's, it's something that I'm so excited that the men are, are here this week because it's really showcasing what the golf course is and how hard it is, how much more, more difficult it is than the previous. And for golfers, they want to be tested week in and week out. In order to be a professional golfer, test your skills each and every week. And our players are now able to hit every single shot that they can think of in golf at our facility. And I tell them this may be one of the hardest. I want this to be the hardest place you play all year. So when we leave, it's easy. You know, it looks easy, but the, the money and the effort that was put into it, it's night and day different. Our, this junior class that I spoke of with Bia and Amelia um, was the number one recruiting class in the country. And they came to school based on a picture of what Seminole legacy was going to look like. So that in itself speaks volumes because it was a picture and now it's reality and it is unreal. I can't even, I don't have enough adjectives to describe the golf course because it's one of those things as a coach, I'm, I'm ecstatic that every single day we get to come out here and, and play this golf course. That's awesome. Let alone, let alone the practice facility. I mean, we've added a, a 12 hole par three course which is unbelievable. So when I say we're working on our short game and, and inside a hundred yards, that's where we have the opportunity to do it. And, and very few schools, if any, have that, have a short course associated with the practice facility. Hey, a little bit of a tangent here, coach, but you mentioned, you know, Bia went home last March and really worked on her game. Uh, you know, golf had a resurgence because of COVID because it's something that people could do during COVID. Is that going to turn into, uh, you know, more better players in a couple of years when you're on the recruiting road? I mean, did it allow, uh, I don't want to say fringe players, but it just allowed people to devote more time to playing golf. Will that show up in, in recruiting? I have no doubt that'll show up in recruiting because a lot of kids who were maybe iffy on whether they wanted to play golf when golf was like one of the few things you could actually go and do. I think a lot of kids fell either fell in love with the game again or gotten to got to know the game of golf through their parents because their parents were always out there so I have no doubt that that there'll be a lot more people playing golf and a lot better golfers when they come out uh, to college because of COVID. Amy my last part of this uh, and we've seen this with the women's soccer program but talk just a little bit about your focus uh, and, and being able to recruit internationally just not stateside. I mean it's huge for us. I mean, the, the, as we talked about a little bit ago about how the national championship runs where it's stroke play into match play, having the internationals, they play match play all the time. Our Americans don't see it very often. So again, their experience playing in match play helps us as a program. So if we can have a couple of internationals on our team that can teach our players, not only how to, how to be a teammate, but also how to play match play to me is huge you don't see very many programs these days that don't have at least one international player but I'm thankful that that we have the budget to be able to go 
get a, a couple of kids uh, here and there and uh, it's worldwide. I mean, golf is worldwide. You see it, you see it all over TV each and every week um, that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. Um, you can be, you can be a good golfer. And to me, I just like that as a coach. That's what we're here for. I love bringing in kids with different cultures. I mean, I'm an Ocala born Floridian. I didn't get out much as a kid, but to have these kids in our program teaching me about Sweden and England, and we've had kids from Finland and Switzerland. These are countries that I may never get the opportunity to go to, but by golly, I can learn from these players what it was like for them growing up as a kid and how they learned the game and stuff like that. So I love it. I think it's neat. I'm not a big flyer. So when I get the opportunity to fly over, I'm like, Ugh, really don't want to go. But in the long run, it is a huge blessing to have these kids on campus and being Seminoles because they don't quite understand what in the beginning, what being a Seminole is and why Americans are so attached to certain schools, but they go, okay, now I get it and understand. All right, Tommy. <laughs> All right, Tommy. She's, she's a big city girl from Ocala because you got the country boy from Wildwood talking to her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> coach Amy Bond. Hey, Coach, thanks for joining us. Best of luck this weekend. No pressure, by the way, when you look at beach volleyball finishing number five. Soccer, I know, came up just short as number two. Women's tennis still going. Softball's hosting regionals this weekend. I mean, the women got it going on at Florida State, no question. Yeah everybody's playing so good. I sent Mark a text last night. You know, I think it was devastating to us all and you work so hard and you finish second. It's extremely hard. And, and uh, he told me, he goes, now it's your turn. And I'm like, I'm happy to, to follow your lead. So the women's sports are playing great. I'm excited to see what happens with softball and tennis, um, obviously with us, but um, you know, when a year ago we were sitting on our tushies doing nothing. Um, I'm pretty proud of where Florida state athletics are right now. Amen. Coach Amy Bond from Florida State Golf. We'll take a break and come back with more Front Row Knowles right after this. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Back on Front Row Knowles, thanks to Bob Ferrante, as always, for joining us, and Coach uh, Amy Bond. I failed to point out, they joined us, as all our guests do, via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. Keith, how do you solve the RPI? What do we do with it? Blow it up? Well, see, again, I go back, and I've not studied it, but I'm wondering if this isn't just a one-year abnormality and that we don't really need to do anything. Go back to scheduling the way you used to in 2021 excuse me, 2022, and, and don't try to fix a problem that's a one-year abnormality. However, if in fact there needs to be some tweaking, then that needs to be done at the conference level. For example, um, maybe we, you know, I know they played six extra games this year. I, I haven't heard you tell me. I didn't, I didn't hear that that was permanent. I heard that that was a COVID thing. No, that was just a this year thing. Yeah. And, and so that frees up six games. We always talked about, you know, I, I hate that we don't play Florida over a weekend. 
But in order to get that done, then conferences, I think, have to talk to each other. And maybe we can formulate the, um, the ACC Big Ten basketball rivalry and make that an ACC-SEC baseball rivalry and, and drop one of the series and, and match it up conference to conference. I don't know. Let me amend what I said because I think it's two different points. The playing 50 games instead of 56, that's a COVID thing. But the playing 36 league games instead of 30, that may be permanent. That's a point that, that Bob made. Um, and I'm not, I'm not positive on that front. I, I will say this, Keith. Now, this is just judging Florida State against other Florida State teams. This is not judging this year's Florida State team against the landscape of college baseball. But I've watched this team play a lot this year. And if you just give it the old eye test, which I detest and hate in college football, it's not one of the top 16 teams in terms of should have been hosting a regional definitively. Now that said they can pitch and they've won five series in a row because they've got arms. And so they can take two out of three, but that's again, that's comparing this team against other Florida state teams, not against everybody that's in the college field. Cause I simply haven't seen all those teams play. And again, I I'm still baffled. You're, you're more of the baseball expert than I'll ever be, but you know, I felt like, 11 took the bats out of kids' hands too many times, and I don't think Meat does that. So I expected the hitting to be better, and it just hasn't been um, for whatever reason. Well, the big – the two reasons I'll point to, and, uh, you know, if we gave Meat the pulpit, he might have to get his wallet ready to pay the fines for what he'd uh, opine about. But uh, one, in the case of this year, you have a lot of really good arms came back because they couldn't go in the draft. That, so. That's a fact. There's no question. The other thing, and it showed up this weekend, when you have a weekend series when both coaches get ejected in separate games because the balls and strike calls were so bad, which is what happened this past weekend, Meat got tossed one day and Clemson's coach the next for arguing balls and strikes, which is to say that the strike zone is so inconsistent. Uh, that That's an issue too. Um, because, you know, you teach your kids to be disciplined and don't extend the zone. Uh, but he's, he's definitely more aggressive than what 11's approach was. But when a ball is, you know, two feet off the dirt and it's called strike three, you know, you don't want to teach your players to swing at that. And, and no, that's, I agree. I that's, agree. that's, that's are, part of the issue too. You know, those are two very, very, very good points. Uh, I, I, I hear you. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how that gets better. Um, that's a whole separate show too, Keith, you know, the scrutiny of officials and referees, uh, between social media and all the technological advances that allow replay reviews from everywhere, we second guess so much now. And I don't think it puts us in a better place when we get to too many replay situations. I mean, college baseball, you see it once or twice a game, maybe we'll go replay something, not a ball and a strike call. Uh, but in sports in general, it takes away from the flow of the game. Like you want to get the call right, but you don't want to be here for six weeks. Yeah. Are you aware, I was told, maybe it's a vicious rumor or an urban legend, but I'm told that Hauser is equipped with a strike zone machine or whatever it's called. Do you know that to be factual or is that urban legend? Mm, I, I don't know one way or the other. And, and of course, for, you, for those that may not be aware, you know, at the major league level uh, in a major league telecast, they put that little box up. Uh, they don't do that in most cases at the college level, but I was told that that technology is in Hauser and the coaches can look at it. 
I don't know, but you know, one of the things, and uh, if you're a baseball fan and you sit in the stands a lot, you know, this, if you just watch the catcher, just see if he's got a reach for the ball. I mean, is his glove staying here or is he going like this and then trying to frame it up? Sure. And so you can tell from the third baseline or the first baseline, like, hey, he just went way outside and brought that back in and you called it a strike or he went way down and brought it up. And so that's when you get the fans on him and uh, and obviously meet from the third base coach's box. He's been looking at that for a long time and has a pretty good idea without any computer technology of, yeah, uh, that wasn't a strike. But it, I, I've seen a lot of inconsistency this year. And it was certainly inconsistent when I was calling the game. So that is part of the issue too. No, no question. No question. Keith, uh, I think we're done. Didn't talk much football. A little bit about the play. Is there, is there something you wanted to add about football? No, no. It's just been real cool. Uh, The the camps have done well. June will be big from a recruiting standpoint and uh, the on-campus camps. Um, But I like it being quiet because unfortunately this time of year, if you're talking way too much football, it's because somebody did something wrong or somebody got hurt or something bad happened. So maybe that's a good thing. You know, we're almost to June and you know, it's after June, right? I don't know where you're going with this. Well, July, but what's after July? August. Fall camp. So we're getting, we're getting closer <laughs> to football. Is what? <laughs> yeah. There wasn't really a natural way to get there. Keith, sorry to leave you on an Island. Well, yeah, you can tell our show prep was a little uh, missing right there. But point is, we're getting closer to football season. I'll we are, we week. are. We he, are, we are. He's Keith. I'm Tom. Thanks for tuning in to Front Row Knowles. Control.